Okay, good morning everybody, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, two quick things before we get started here, we're going to say the creed in just a second. One is, uh, one of the things that we talk about at New Life Church is that in each of the different congregations, what we have the freedom to do, like we talk about synchronizing our worship calendar, so we're all kind of at the congregations, we're preaching the same basic preaching series, and we kind of share the same song bank and all of that. But then inside of all that, there's something that we call contextualized ministry, which means that we have the freedom to do ministry in a way that matches the specific geographical region that we are, the people that we're reaching. And I just got to say, the prairie party is as good an expression of contextualized ministry. Ain't nobody else doing a prairie party. So well done, New Live East. That's who you are. That's so great. Also, you've probably noticed that our community is growing some. If you were at our family meeting a few weeks ago, uh, you heard Pastor Colin mention that I think over the course of the summer, we've grown by close to 30%, something crazy like that. So we're growing. And one of the things that we're paying attention to is that there are a lot more families coming that have high school students or junior high students or students that in the next couple years are going to be preparing to enter junior high. And so we're very aware of that as a um, our desire is to offer as full body to ministry as we possibly can out here. And so uh, one of the things that we're thinking a lot about in the next six to 12 months is what does student ministry look like for us here at New Life East? So the last, I want you to mark this in your calendar. If you're the parent of a high schooler or a junior high student or students that are preparing to enter junior high, the last Wednesday night of the month, everybody say the last Wednesday night of the month. That's really good. And say, Andrew, what night is that? I have no idea. That's what I'm telling you. It's the last Wednesday night of the month. Thank you. The 29th. I appreciate that. At 6.30 p.m. at the New Life North main campus, we're going to host a parents forum, okay? And what we want to do is we don't want to make a lot of assumptions about what student ministry should look like before we talk to you about what's going on with your kids, the challenges that you're facing, what's in your hearts. And so that'll be 6.30 to 8 o'clock at New Life North. Student ministry happens at New Life North. So you can drop your kids off at the junior high ministry or high school ministry. Join us for a meal and some conversation around the future of student ministry at New Life East. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. Let's declare our faith together here. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church 
we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And let's remain standing in God's presence. Would you just begin to welcome the work of the Spirit in your life? We don't just want to thoughtlessly or carelessly blunder into the scriptures, but we want to come in with eyes open and with hearts open. And so we're saying, ready us, O Lord. Ready us. Speak, O God. Speak. This creed that we just got done saying together tells the story of how God has come to be with us, the mystery of the presence of God, the mystery of redemption, of salvation, is right here, and it's right now. It's in this moment here. Jesus, you said that wherever two or three, so we have the minimum, are gathered in your name, that you would be there in the midst of them. You said to your disciples at the end of your ministry, just as you were getting ready to ascend into heaven, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We trust that that is true this morning. We trust that that's true. We say to you this morning that we need you and that we need you to open our eyes and open our hearts in a fresh way. God, we're asking for your help. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we're asking that you would strike the fetters off of our lives, that you would break chains and shackles, that you would free us. You'd help us become more fully your people. This morning, grant that, we pray. We pray that we would bump into you as we open the scriptures together, that we would meet the risen Christ walking with us on the road to Emmaus. Would you grant that, we pray. We also pray, Lord, that wherever we have ceased to be hungry and thirsty for you, that you would awaken hunger in us. Augustine said, you have salted my lips, O God, that I might thirst for you. We pray that you would salt our lips this morning. Make us ache for you. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, come. So we say, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. It's Galatians chapter 3, as we're making our way through the book of Galatians. And I'm going to start at verse 23 here. The Apostle Paul writes, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody. Everybody say held in custody. We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come should be revealed. For the law, the law, he says, was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, he says, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, thanks be to God. Paul has been in the midst of this like knockdown argument against the Judaizers, the influencers, those who were trying to take the early Christian movement and make it something other than what it really was. They were trying to make the law in particular 
a stumbling block. That if you really want to be a Christian, yes, faith in Jesus is fine as we've learned. But you have to do all these other things as well, right? You have to observe the Sabbath laws. Circumcision is important. Make sure that you're following the dietary restrictions. We have this cycle of festivals that we do all year long. If you don't do those things, then you're not really in the faith. And Paul has been, I mean, it's been a diatribe, the whole book, really just knocking that argument down. And he has some really profound and some really strong things to say against those people. And in saying those things against those people, he also winds up making some really strong statements against the law of Moses, statements that if we're paying attention, should make us kind of ask some questions, you know. So like one of the things that he says This was back in the last last text that we covered. Paul writes that Christ Jesus redeemed us. This is Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a, a pole. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So if we've been following Paul's argument, it seems as though what he's been saying to us over and over again is that the law is no longer in effect for God's people. Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yay, we can like do whatever we want, right? Right. So then the question that probably as you've been following along in Galatians, certainly as I've been studying it, the question that comes up is like the question of, okay, well, Paul, then what, uh, if Christ Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, is there any role left to the law of Moses? So the question, we would put it like this, I think, what is the role of the law in the plan of God? And maybe to put, make the question even more specific, germane for like where we live, I'd say like this, that maybe the question really is, does God care about how we live? And how would we know if God cares about how we live? And how would we know what God requires of us? And as he starts making his way to the second half of the book here, in the second half of Galatians chapter 3, you see that Paul begins to tease out an answer to this question. Does, what is the ongoing role of the law and the plan of God? Does God care about how we live and how would we know? Look back down at verses 24 and 25. The question is, what is the ongoing role of the law and the plan of God? And Paul writes here, and he uses some language here that I think is very much worth our attention. He says, so the law was our, what does the text say? Our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a, what does the text say? A guardian. We're no longer under a guardian. Now, when you think about it, you know, that I, a lot of parents in this room. So like, uh, as we start thinking about like, what, what is the role of the guardian with the children? Those of you that are parents in the room, think about the times that you have hired babysitters for your kids. You know, what is the role of the babysitter while you're away? Yeah, at a minimum, at a minimum, keep the kids alive, right? But you also, if you develop a long-term relationship with the babysitter, the babysitter comes more and more to embody what you care about for your kids, right? So even though you're away from your children, it's as though you were with your children, okay? The babysitter isn't the parent, but it's not not the parent, right? The babysitter is there to make sure that the kids are doing what they ought to be doing. And also the babysitter is there to protect the children from harm. Okay? Something like that is what Paul is doing when he's talking about the guardian here in Galatians chapter 3. The Greek word that he uses is the word pedagogue. Can I hear you say pedagogue? And this was actually a formal uh, role in Greco-Roman society, first century, 
You would hire a pedagogue. A pedagogue was like a glorified babysitter or almost like a nanny, actually. This is a person that you would hire as you had all of your important civic duties to attend to and a life that you have to run. You'd hire this person, the pedagogue or something like a nanny, to watch over your children while you were paying attention to all of these other things. And the pedagogue had two important functions in Greco-Roman society. Number one, the pedagogue instructed and regulated the behavior of the children, okay? So the pedagogue is given the way of life that the parents care about so that the pedagogue can make sure that that's embodied while the, while the parents are away. Are you following with me? And the second thing is that the pedagogue actually took the kids to and from school and the world was dangerous back then. So you're making sure that as they're going to and from school that they're protected from harm. So when Paul says this about the law, that the law was our pedagogue, he's saying something really important. Some Christians, I think, have a very negative view of the law. Some people, even in Paul's day, I think, had a very negative view of the law. Paul doesn't have a negative view of the law. Paul thinks that the law of Moses was a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. In other words, the law was not God himself, right? Just like the babysitter is not the parent, the parent's self. The law was not God himself, but it also wasn't not God. (laughs) And by having the law of Moses, you had something of God. Think for a moment about, for instance, the backbone of the law of Moses, something we know as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not something other than the relationship that this people has with the Lord their God, but it actually stipulates what the shape of that relationship should be. I am the Lord your God who brought you out out of Egypt. You shall have, do you know the first commandment? No other gods before me. This is shaping up the relationship between Yahweh and his people. The law serves this incredibly important function between the two of them. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. So now we're teasing out that first commandment. If you shouldn't have any gods before me, Also, don't make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on earth below. Third commandment. Do you know it? This is like good. We're doing catechism is actually what we're doing here this morning. You know the third commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. Right? What's it doing? What is the pedagogue doing there? It's shaping up the relationship between Yahweh and this people. Do you know the fourth commandment? Remember the the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So now... We're starting to shape this people's calendar so that the rhythms of their life keep them facing God. Do you know the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother, right? Paul says that this is the first commandment with the promise, that it might go well with you and you will live long on the earth. So now we're shaping up a godly relationship between the generations. Because as we know, when that relationship begins to break down, all kinds of other things begin to crumble. And so the other commandments follow hard on the heels of that. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions, right? All of these things are shaping up human life so that it works. That's God's desire for us, ladies and gentlemen, that human life would work. And the law was a pedagogue that taught that. It was an instructor that helped God's people understand that. Which is why, by the way, you get the ringing statements of affection for the law that you do when you read the Old Testament. You ever read Psalm 119? Longest psalm in all the Psalter. 
But the psalmist is not negative at all about the law, are they? When you think about the texture of that psalm and how it goes, one of the great statements of the psalmist in Psalm 119, you know what the psalmist says? Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all day long. He says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies. They are ever with me. He says, I have more understanding even than my, instruction, my instructors because I obey your statutes, your precepts. They're my delight. They are my counselors. They are the joy of my heart. I have set my heart on keeping your decrees even to the very end. Why is the psalmist so in love with the law of God? Because the law reminds him what it looks like when life goes right. When life goes the way that God intends, our life is ordered to the face of the living God. That's the first commandment, by the way. You shall have no other gods before you. Do you know what the literal Hebrew is there? You shall have no other gods before my face. You know what God is saying? Don't stop looking at me, Israel. <laughs> That's as life-giving a command as you could ever dream up. That's the foundation of our spirituality. Don't stop looking at God. And don't make any images that would distract you from me. Don't misuse my name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep coming back to worship as a people. This will anchor your life in life, capital L. It'll make it sound. It'll make it whole. It'll help it flourish. This is why the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. People who say such things don't experience the commands as a burden. They've entered into the spirituality of the commands. So when Paul in Galatians, okay, is making his diatribe against the law and the misuse, I would say, of the law, Paul understands, as the rest of the New Testament understands this, that the law was not bad. Everybody say the law was not bad. Say, Andrew, how can you say that the law is not bad? Because thou shalt have no other gods before you is not a bad thing. <laughs> right? Or think about even the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or, his hus or her husband or house or possessions, anything belonging to your neighbor. That's a good command. <laughs> That's the shape of what life looks like when life goes right. When we start desiring the things that other people possess, it perverts our life. For Paul, as for the rest of the New Testament, the law wasn't bad. Everybody say the law wasn't bad. It just wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. You think about the great statement of Paul, Romans chapter 7. Romans is a great compliment to the book of Galatians. Paul says that so then the law is, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 14, Paul says, we know that the law is what? It's spiritual. Why can Paul say that it's spiritual? Because the law orders us to the living God. And it was given to us by the very end of God. Of course, the law is spiritual. He says, we know that the law is unspiritual. But what does Paul say? I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is where? It's with us. And even Moses, the lawgiver himself, knows this. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 26. Moses says to the Levites, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. And there it will remain as a witness against you. For I know, this is, now Moses has been with his people 40 years. He has given them the law once. 
He has walked with them for 40 years. He has teased out the implications of the law. He has tried his best to get the law upon their hearts, right? Now in Deuteronomy, he's recapitulating the law. He's going over the law one last time before he dies. He knows he's about to die. And this is what Moses knows about this people. He says, I know that you are a rebellious and stiff-necked people. If you've been rebellious against the Lord while I'm alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to testify against them. For I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn away from all that I've commanded you. And in the days to come, disaster will fall on you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. Where does Moses locate the problem? Not with the law, but with what? With the people. He says you're rebellious and you're stiff-necked. You keep going your own way and doing your own thing. It's not a problem with the law. It's the problem with, is with you. The problem is that you don't have hearts to love and to fear the Lord. And so the commandments are not really doing you any good. You're actually rebelling against the commandments and you're only going to do so more and more, which is why you start to see in the prophets of the Old Testament, this promise starts to be circulated among the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. They start saying that there is this day coming with the people of God when the law will no longer sit on the surface of their lives, but the law will begin to penetrate to the depths of their lives. Jeremiah says it so profoundly. He says that the time, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will no longer write the law on tablets of stone, but I will inscribe it where? The tablets of the human heart. They won't be running around anymore saying, know the Lord, because all of them are going to know me from the least of them to the greatest. The law will get written upon the heart. Think about what Jesus is doing with the Ten Commandments, with the law in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, for instance. But what does Jesus say? say, But I say unto you, don't hate anybody where? In your heart. Because Jesus understands that the fruit of murder depends on what? The root of contempt for other people. So Jesus is not pushing away the law of Moses, but he's deepening the command of the law of Moses. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But what does Jesus say? Well, I'm saying to you, don't look upon a man's, another person's wife or husband or whatever to lust, to desire them in your heart. Because the fruit of adultery depends on the root of lust. Right? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't break your oaths, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord your God. But Jesus says, but I'm saying to you, don't swear at all. Why? Because in swearing, what you're doing is you're creating this situation where your word now needs another word on top of it. Jesus says, don't do that. You have a bad heart when you do that. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What is Jesus trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount? He's deepening the commands so that they penetrate the innermost. And that, by the way, is precisely what Paul is doing in this section of Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul writes, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer slaves, but God's children. And because you are children, God has made you also an heir. What is Paul saying? He's saying that it used to be that you were slaves to these elemental forces of the world. And you, just like the people of God in the Old Testament, you were being yanked away from God because you were in bondage. But he says, but now something has happened. God has written his will and his ways upon your soul so that you don't even need the pedagogue saying to you, now don't do this and don't do that. Because the pedagogue now, that to which the pedagogue had pointed, that's actually like inhabited you. Jesus Christ himself, the one who gives us the Sermon on the Mount and deepens its commands by his spirit. Now he lives within us so that like him, we don't look upon God as a taskmaster, but we look upon God as father and a good father who loves us and loves the world around us and is trying with all of his might by the power of his spirit to lead us into wholeness and into flourishing And so what we do is we immerse ourselves in the will and the ways of God and the spirit of God renews us so that we walk in God's ways and we keep his laws. John Calvin said it so well when he said it like this. He said that Christians are under the law of grace means not that they are to wander unrestrained without law, but that they are what? Engrafted into Christ by whose grace they are freed from the curse of the law and by whose spirit they have the law written in their hearts. Guys, that's who we are. We're not the people who are wandering around in slavish obedience because we think that God's just kind of constantly mad at us and we just got to do nice stuff to make him happy. Nor are we people that are just running around rebelliously. But we've been given a share of God himself. If God's spirit dwells in us, that means that God's own motivating life force lives inside of us so that we become as God is in the world. And I think that understanding this, guys, helps us ward off at least two errors that Christians are falling into. One of those errors is an error, an ancient error known as antinomianism. Now, I know that that's a really big word, but what it really means, anti against nomianism comes from the Greek word namos, which means the law, anti-law. And there are some Christians that believe That now that we have come into the era of grace, the law is irrelevant and all is grace. And therefore, our behavior doesn't matter. And I would bet you that you have met people like this that teach this. That hyper grace crowd, right? That says, hey, we're not law Christians, okay? You know, we are. We're grace Christians over here. We're not into all that stuff, the rules and the regulations and the religiosity. What we are is we're just all about the grace of God and the love of God. And everything is just ooey gooey and mushy and nice and... Wonderful. Antinomianism, the hyper-grace crowd. And it sounds so nice, doesn't it? We're just all about grace. We're just all about love. We're just all about, the, it's just all the mushy stuff. It sounds so nice. Do you know what the problem with it is? It's completely impractical. You can't build a society on that. <laughs> you can't build a church on that. You can't build a household on that. It just doesn't work. We need the laws and the decrees, the instructions and the commandments of God to know how we are to live. The difference is that they don't sit on the surface of our lives anymore, but they're inscribed in the depths, but we still need them. They point the way forward for us. Eight days ago, we commemorated the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. Okay? Terrorists flying planes into buildings. That was met 
with universal moral condemnation. Where did that universal moral condemnation come from? It comes from a sense of what God requires, right? The reason that we're able to summon a condemnation against the great evils of our day is because we know something about who God is and what he requires of us. Think about William Wilberforce, the late 1800s over in England. He toppled the slave trade in England. Why? He was a Christian believer. How did he do that? Because he had immersed himself in the will and the ways of God. And so Wilberforce knew something about what God requires and how we're called to treat other human beings. And so from that place of understanding the will and the ways of God, as it's articulated everywhere in Scripture, Wilberforce was able to summon this massive critique that toppled the slave trade in England. Think about in our own country. When we stand up against great evils like racism in our country, are we doing that because the law is irrelevant and all is grace and behavior doesn't matter? No. We believe that the law is written on our hearts now. And because all is grace, right behavior is actually made possible. So when we say that human beings shouldn't be treated like this or like that, we're saying that because we know something about who God is and what God requires. Think about all of the advocacy that believers in, in America are constantly doing for the unborn. See, we know something about human life. We know that human beings, every human being, is made in the image and the likeness of God. And God says, thou shalt not kill. God commands us to promote and to protect human life wherever it is in our power to do so. And from that place, we lift up our voices on behalf of the unborn. That's why we started Mary's Home here in Colorado Springs. We got 18 single moms who had been living on the street are now being taken care of in an 18-unit apartment complex, helping them rebuild their lives and get back on their feet. Why, why are we doing that? Because we know the Lord, brothers and sisters. See, part of what it means to be the people of God is that we are constantly immersing ourselves in this text. This is the importance, by the way, of our spiritual life as individuals. That what we do is we open up the scriptures and like the psalmist, we say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Or like James, James says that what we do is when we stare into the scriptures, they become for us the perfect law. Think about this. That gives freedom. That as we immerse ourselves in what God requires, it actually doesn't diminish our lives. It liberates our lives so that we can become all that God has intended us to be and so that our world can become all that God has intended it to be. And one of the things that I want to say to you this morning is that sometimes I think that we have the impression that to be a faithful Christian in society means that we just have to be nice about everything and don't stir up the waters and make sure that everybody knows that we're just kind and gentle. And, we're, and they, we, we, they do need to know that. And do you know that one of the greatest gifts that we give the world is our moral clarity about things that matter? Do you know that part of your call as the people of God living in this time is to raise your voice about things that matter? You're called to raise your voice on behalf of the unborn. You're called to raise your voice against injustice. 
You are called to lift up your voice when people are being diminished or oppressed, when you see racism or sexism or classism of any kind. That's your call to lift up your voice because you know something about the living God and what he requires. Can I get an amen? Amen. The second thing is also true, that we veer either, if we're not in antinomianism, I know that's a mouthful, but I'm saying it, not you. If we're not in antinomianism, I think that one of the things that we we do in the church is that we veer into legalism. Everybody say legalism. And if antinomianism says that all is grace, behavior doesn't matter, legalism says that all that matters is behavior. All that matters is behavior. Yes, you put your faith in Jesus and we're glad that you're here now. You better shape up and do the right things. This is the rule book. Make sure that you manage yourself according to the rule book. And if you don't, you're going to lose ground very rapidly with us. And I want to say to you this morning that this legalism has made more atheists than secularism could ever dream of. We embitter people's spirits with our legalism. We embitter people's spirits when we put on them crushing demands and burdens that they can never live up to. Legalism is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, you've been saved now, you better do all this stuff and kind of manage yourself well until Jesus comes back. That's not how it works. The gospel is that God writes his will and his ways upon our hearts. And what we do is we manage our lives with each other is that we're trusting that the spirit of the living God would come and open our eyes and motivate us to do what's righteous, to do what's right. And I think that part of what we do and the reason that we become legalistic is because that for us seems like an easy way to manage other people's behavior. I remember praying for a gal down at the altar years ago, Mandy and I, this is after a Friday night service and a gal came up to us and she said, she said, you know, I grew up in this household that was very fundamentalist. Everything was about the rules, all about what you did and how you behaved yourself. And she said it was crushing that she had been through some incredible church hurts, deep traumas. And she's standing there with us at the altar after service and she's crying. She got a hat on, shame has covered her face. And she's starting to feel in between all of that legalism and the trauma that she had experienced at the hands of those who were also telling her that she needed to do the right things, huge building pressure inside of her spirit. And I remember her saying to us, she goes, I just, I'm not sure. Like, I don't think that I can hold it together anymore. And I'm just really afraid that I'm going to wind up kind of blowing a tire morally and doing something stupid. And I'm going to wind up under a table, drunk and passed out, making a fool of myself. And you know, I said to her, I said, I hope that that doesn't happen. But if it does, here's my cell phone number and Mandy's cell phone number. Would you just call us? And we'll come and get you. And we'll bring you home and get you cleaned up. And you just come to church again. And if it happens again, just give us a call. And we'll go down there to the bar. And we'll find you. And we'll load you up in the car and we'll clean you up and we'll bring you home. And then you come to church again next Sunday. And if it happens again, would you call us? And would you let us know? Because you know what we're going to come and do? We're going to go down there and we're going to pick you up and clean you up and get you back home. And then you just come back. (laughs) She's crying. And she sent us a message, email a couple weeks later. And she said, all of that pressure that I felt inside is gone. 
And I've never had anybody in the church talk to me like that before. Guys, this is Jesus. Jesus is not the one who shakes his finger at us, telling us, well, you got to do better now. Jesus is the one who goes, if you find yourself face down in a ditch, you couldn't do it. I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to bring you home and I'm going to get you on your feet again. And somehow in that process of yielding to Jesus in that, like letting him love us, do you know what happens? We find strength. We want to do what's right. All of a sudden we begin saying, like I, but we say what we pray in the prayer that we may delight in your will and you walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We discover that we're sons and daughters of the living God. And because that identity has dropped deep into our souls, we do what pleases our Father, not because we're scared of him, but because we share a spirit with him. We're one in spirit with the Lord our God. This is why we come. When I think about my own spirituality, when I think about the spirituality of this church, I am never sitting around going, golly, I hope we just get it better. Do you know what my prayer over New Life East is? Do you know what my prayer over my life is? Come, Holy Spirit. Change us. Help us. Saturate us. Make us like Jesus. Can you agree with that this morning? Would you stand to your feet? And would you stretch your arms to the heavens? And we say, Father, we need you. Father, we need you. We have not yet become, as you have called us to be, sons and daughters of the living God, but we know that by your spirit you can make us this. There is a great deal of the slaves still living in us, but you are freeing us in this moment. And so we come and we say, give us clean hearts, O oh God, and work a steadfast spirit in us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Grant us willing spirits, we say, O oh God, to sustain us. Come, search us, O oh God. Know our hearts. Test us and know our innermost thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. And we make this our prayer together. We say, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And we have not loved you with our whole hearts and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And brothers and sisters, now I say to you that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not just that, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This morning, God is giving us new hearts and new spirits. If you can receive that, would you give God praise and thanksgiving this morning? Let's respond in worship and then Pastor Colin's going to lead us to the table. for all my sin you
be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It's the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. And we, while we were yet sinners, that's when Jesus died for us. Would you let his kindness guide you and lead you to the table this morning to receive this. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you break that bread in your hands together? The crushing that happened to him for you. Would you receive the bread? the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes do you proclaim the mystery of our faith together that Christ has died Christ is risen Christ will come again and would you receive the cup together you begin to offer up praise together. Praise for the Lord for how he has found you. How he has called to you. How he is drawing you even today. Continue this worship church.
hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. O God, you who have done great things in us, because you are sons and daughters of the living God, he has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so, brothers and sisters, I say to you that you are no longer slaves but children, and because children, you are heirs of all things with Christ Jesus. Would you know that in your bones? Lift up your hands and receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you.